100 fighters burning out of control across California. Slams into the Gulf Coast overnight. overwhelmed and overrun. wildfire shootings all at Atlanta area massage park during a mass shooting at a busy Colorado supermarket. Why are things so broken? Broken. Why does evil happen? God, why am I broke? Why does everyone hate me? God, you do some justice. Stop. Why is the world unfair? Why is the world the way it is? Am I beautiful? Why should I have hope? Why do disasters occur? Why is the world why people Why does it happen? What can I do about brokenness? This isn't how things are supposed to be. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medina East. If you are new or if you're a guest, my name is Kevin, one of the pastors on staff. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for joining us today. I want to welcome you, those of you watching online as well. Uh, if you are new, you are catching us right now at the end of a series uh, that we are calling Broken. And uh, the big idea behind this series is that when you and I, when we look at the world around us, that it sure seems to be broken. That when we look at all of the pain and the suffering in the world, that almost universally, I think that we would all say that, man, things... Things are not the way they are supposed to be, right? This just can't be the world that we were supposed to live in. But one of the implications of that statement is that it means that if things are not the way they are supposed to be, it means that there has to be a way that things were supposed to be. That if we're making the the claim that our world is broken, then there has to be an unbroken version at some point in the past that existed, And if those realities are true, we think that that evidence actually points us back to a good and a loving, intelligent creator who created that unbroken world for us. And so the first week of this series, we introduced that idea, and we introduced the fact that there were four major ways the Bible talks about in which the world fell and in which it broke. And uh, the first week, uh, the second week of the series, uh, Colin talked to us about this first relationship. He talked to us about the breakdown of the relationship between God and man. And the fact that the primary reason that we live in a fallen world is because we are not personally in right relationship to our creator. That when we opt out of his good and perfect design, when we go our own way, when we trust our way over God's way, that we bring and we continue to bring the brokenness in. We also talked about the fact that at the start of the problem was our broken relationship with God. That means the start of the solution must also be fixing and restoring that relationship. And the good news that Colin talked about is that God moved heaven and earth to make that possible, that through Jesus and through the cross, that it is possible for those of us who choose to live by faith and follow him to be restored and be in right relationship with our creator. So that was week two. And then last week, week three, Tony walked us through the breakdown of the relationship between man and self. And he talked about how shame and fear and guilt and insecurity and these feelings that they have now entered the story and how if we are not careful, these feelings can lead us in these downward cycles, these patterns of internal brokenness. But he also talked about how we can let Jesus take our shame about how he offers to cover us and how God wants to heal us 
and restore us from the inside out. And so this week, as we close out this series, we're actually gonna talk about the final two relationships, both the relationship between man and man and the one between man and creation. And the disclaimer I wanna give you at the beginning is we're gonna spend about 80% of our time on this first one and about 20% on the second. So when I'm done with the first and we transition, don't think that you're only halfway through. We are, we are pretty close to the end at that point. So, uh, so if you have a Bible with you, you guys can join me in Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four. If you don't have one, there should be one uh, under the seat in front of you. Uh, I was told last service that there weren't some in front of under the seat. So if you don't have one, maybe just kind of look down the aisle and someone could, could get you one. But we're gonna be in Genesis four. Um, and so the breakdown between man and man uh, is a relationship that we talked about a little bit the first week, and we've kind of hit on a little bit each of the weeks as we work through this because uh, it keeps coming up in Genesis chapter three. And so when God finds Adam, Adam and he asks him, what has he done? His immediate response is to blame Eve, right? He throws her under the bus. He says, it's the woman's fault. It's the one you put here. She did this. And instead of owning his own mistakes, he starts to place blame, and you see that this relationship between man and man is already starting to break down. But what we're about to find is you continue working your way through the book of Genesis, even into just the next two or three chapters, that this was only the beginning, and the breakdown of this relationship continues to spiral out of control, and it continues to get worse and worse and worse. And so we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We read this. Adam Made love, made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gives birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And so as we move into chapter 4, we're told that Adam and Eve, that they have two sons. Uh, the older they name Cain and the younger they name Abel. One is a farmer and one is a shepherd. And at some point into the future, we don't know exactly how much time has passed uh, or how old they are. Both brothers decide to bring an offering before God. And the text tells us that God looked with favor upon Abel's offering, but that he looked with, did not look with favor upon Cain's. I think there's actually a pretty good reason that can explain why that is, but we don't really have time to get into that today. But what we can know from the text is that Cain was not acting rightly towards God, and so he rejects his offering. And we know he was not acting in good faith because of how God responds to him. So look at, look at what he says. He challenges him to do what is right, and then he warns him that sin is crouching at his door and it desires to have you. Right? He challenges him and he warns him. And so whatever Cain did, it was egregious enough that God puts this in the category of sin. He says, you've sinned against me. And then when God challenges him, when he says, do what is right, I want you to hear that in the context of what we've been talking about, that there was a good and right way that, God, that Cain was supposed to be interacting with God. Right? He had a designed way. This is how this is supposed to work. And Cain has not chosen in. He's saying, choose in. Lean into the design I've created you for. 
But Cain decides, for whatever reason, to opt out. His little brother's offering is accepted while his is not. And so now things like anger and jealousy start to kick in. We see this starting in verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And so obviously, instead of listening to God and trusting God, Cain opts out. He decides he's going to handle things his own way. And part of God's punishment to him is that he takes away his ability to farm. He says, I am no longer going to bless your crops. You're going to have to find a new way to feed yourself now. And that that seems kind of like a random thing, but when you are a farmer, when you are able to settle down, it allows you to stay in one place. And it allows you to be part of the family unit that they were starting to build. And what this tells us is that when he was, this was taken away, that he was driven from that. He has to go now out and search to find food, and he becomes a restless wanderer. So God essentially takes away his community, his ability to be around his family. Now, one of the things that I want you guys to notice about the brokenness in this story is that the brokenness does not start between the brothers, Right? The brokenness doesn't start in the man-to-man relationship. The brokenness, it actually starts up here. It starts between Cain and God. Right? When Cain acts wrongly towards God, when he sins against God, this is where the brokenness enters the story. And as soon as the brokenness enters here, we now see the brokenness moving inward. The brokenness moves to the man and self section, and now you find Cain struggling with things like shame and anger and jealousy Right, internal brokenness has now entered the story, and internal brokenness, it never stays internal. It always finds a way to manifest itself outward, and in this case and in this story, all of that brokenness that's in here, it gets directed squarely upon his brother. One of the things that I appreciate about this story is it is such a clear picture of the interconnectedness between these different falls, how when there is brokenness in one area, it can often affect and cause brokenness in another. Now, one of the key phrases in this passage, I think, is the rhetorical question that Cain asked God in verse 9. So God asked Cain the question. He says, where is your brother Abel? To which Cain replies, he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? And as you read that interaction, I think you can almost feel the tension starting to rise in the room a little bit, right? And so after Cain kills Abel, God confronts him. As we talked about in the first week of this series, because God loves his creation, he is forcefully against anything that threatens it. And so God is rightly upset with Cain. And so he confronts him and he calls him out. But instead of owning his mistake, instead of admitting that he messed up, Instead of admitting that he, in his frustration, he went and did something he shouldn't have, right? Cain, again, in his frustration, he doubles down and he basically brushes off God's question. He says, I don't know, God. What am I, my brother's keeper, right? Like, and you can feel the tension in the room. And I think if I could translate what he's saying in that moment, I think he's basically saying this. He's saying, not my problem. 
right? God says, hey, where's your brother? Cain's like, I don't know. It's not my problem. I don't care. And if, if you guys, it seems like kind of a dramatic response, but if you can even think back to yourself as children, right? So maybe one of your brothers or sisters was doing something they shouldn't, and your parent comes in, and they're like, hey, where's your brother? You're like, I don't know. That's not my problem. Like, I'm not the parent. You're the parent. You fit. That's your problem, right? Not my problem, right? And I think that's kind of the response that we get here. Now, I also think that Cain's response to God's question, unfortunately, I think it is an all too common response that actually defines so much of the broken culture in which we live. I think it is a mindset that looks out for me above everybody else. It is a mindset that does not care about how my decision affects you. It is a mindset that only cares how that decision affects me. So if we think about this for a moment, we think about people in the world who maybe scam someone out of something or lie to someone else or cheat someone else or steal from someone else, right? What they are doing is what makes them happy, what makes them feel good, what brings them pleasure. And what about the person they're scamming? What about the person who is lied to? What about the person who is stolen from? Well, not my problem, right? If I was smart enough to convince them to do that and they weren't, like, well, that's on them. That helped me. Not my problem how it affected them. If you think about maybe all of the physical violence in the world, about abuse, about murder, about rape, right? Just like Cain, people do what they want to do. They do what makes them feel good. They act on their own desires for revenge. They give in to their impulses of jealousy or anger or lust. And what about the person being hurt? What about the damage it causes them? What about the families or the loved ones who maybe are left behind? Well, not my problem, God. It's not my problem. If you think about things like people living in poverty or people who don't have access to basic needs, things like oppression or injustice that are happening all around the world or even right here in Medina County, now, for most people, these kind of situations, I don't think they tend, they don't want to quite outright say, not my problem, because that sounds pretty insensitive. And so what I, what I found is what people tend to do is they say something like this. They say, yeah, that's terrible. Man, that, I can't believe that people have to live like that, and I can't believe people would, would do something like that. Somebody, somebody should do something about that. That's terrible, right? And when they say somebody should go and do something about that. What they really mean is somebody other than them because they're too busy, because they have more important things to do, because that would be too inconvenient. And basically, although we've, we've kind of like tried to soften it a little bit, what we're basically still saying is, yeah, that's a problem, but you know what? It's not my problem. That's somebody else's problem. Instead of caring for the broken world around them, the way that God designed us to, humanity has decided to primarily care for themselves. From Genesis chapter three onward, what we find is this downward spiral of the human race, this mindset of looking out for me and my interest above and sometimes at the cost or the expense of everyone else. This can be found in every human heart and things begin to get worse and worse and worse. 
By the time, if you keep reading through Genesis, by the time you get to chapter six, we read that humanity has hit its low point. Check out what we read in Genesis chapter six. It says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. And if you or I pause long enough to consider all of the messed up things that happen in the world we live in, I think it is genuinely hard to not get discouraged and to kind of feel the same way. Again, man, things are clearly not the way they're supposed to be. Now, as we mentioned the first week of the series, there's gonna be two challenges that I think come with each of these broken relationships. The first part is always going to be allowing God to do his work in us. So when it comes to us and our personal relationships with our fellow man, we need to allow God to do his work in us so that we are not contributing to and adding to the problem. But in addition to that, it also, God's also going to call us to be part of a solution. So the problems are not all in our relationships. There are problems out there that he's going to call us to. So we're gonna start with the first one, allowing God to do his work in us. And so when it comes to how God has designed you and I to uh, personally interact with our fellow humans, just with every inter human interaction that we have, there are literally hundreds of passages that we could look at. Right? This is what most of us, when we think about the Bible, we think about it. Here's all the laws and rules of how I'm supposed to treat other people. Right? There are literally hundreds of examples we could choose from. As we talked about the first week, all of the laws and the rules in the Old Testament, they all point back to one of these four broken relationships. And I would say a vast majority of them actually speak to this fall of how we're supposed to interact with our fellow man. They actually get pretty specific and unique in some certain places. Um, but as I thought about how we should kind of like, well, right, so there's so many choices, what are, where do we take this? There were kind of two passages that came to my mind that I just think kind of sum up the direction that God is calling us to. The first one comes in Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus has actually asked a question about all of these laws and all of these rules. Here's the question he gets asked. They say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Right, of all 600 plus laws that you can find, Jesus, tell me which one is the most important one. Check out his response. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So how does he respond? Well, he points them back to two of the four falls. He says, go get yourself right with God and then go get yourself right with your neighbor. And I think that order is incredibly important to note as well because as Colin talked about two weeks ago, you cannot do the second without first doing the first, right? It is impossible to fully live out your man-to-man -man relationships rightly until you first get yourself right with God, and the second passage that came to mind that I think kind of sums up the direction that God would call us to is Romans chapter 12. Apostle Paul, he says this. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So that really annoying relative that you can't stand, live at peace with everyone. The boss you have that you think kind of treats you like garbage sometimes, live at peace with everyone. The person in your life who has hurt you or wronged you, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So that means when you wrong someone or when someone wrongs you that you will be committed to working towards peace, that you will extend forgiveness, that you will still show care and respect for them as a human being who is made in God's image. It also means that when you screw up, that when you wrong someone else, that you will own up to your mistakes, that you will try and make things right, that you will seek forgiveness, right? As far as, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I recognize there is weight to that verse, right? Because everyone is a lot of people, right? It's everyone. So how do you do that? How in the world do you find the strength to love your fellow man when at times, let's be honest, some of them are really, really difficult to love? Well, I think it's everything that Colin and Tony talked about the last two weeks. I think it starts with getting yourself right with God. It starts with connecting yourself to the source of life so that you can, in turn, be a source of life to others. I think Colin said it so well. When we lack that source of life, we become takers and we tend to exploit the people around us. We look for what we can get from them. But when we have that source of life, it empowers us to be givers and to be generous and to look for ways we can help the people around us. And when you rightly understand the grace and the generosity that Jesus has extended to you, it motivates you to extend the same generosity and grace to the people around you, right? Jesus has become our model example in this. And then secondly, we must, as Tony said so good last week, we must uh, engage with and confront the internal brokenness that all of us have inside of us. There's a verse in Matthew that I think speaks to this. It's Matthew 12, 34. It says, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And one of the things that that means is that when we hurt people, when we lash out, when we, whether it's verbally or physically, when we hurt people, that, that stuff that's coming out, it's coming from somewhere. And it is always connected to some form of internal brokenness, something that is off inside of us, an insecurity, a fear, uh, and, and, right? There's something that's going on and it's out of that place that we then lash out and often hurt the people around us. Maybe you guys have heard people say the phrase before that hurt people hurt people. I think the reason that there's probably some truth to that is because again, we're all hurt. There's, an, there's something inside of us that is broken and is out of that place that we often hurt other people. But the flip side of that, the good news is the flip side of that is the healthier we become internally, the more secure we become in who God has created us to be on the inside, 
the easier it is for us to love on and show patience to the world around us, right? If there's bad stuff inside, the bad stuff's gonna come out. But if we allow God to, to fix what's inside and to heal what's inside, then there's goodness and love and generosity that will pour out. And yes, that is a bird you're hearing right now. This has been a problem the last week. We have some birds, but we're gonna talk about man and creation later, and this is just God reminding us that we have to love them. So, all right, I totally lost my spot. Where are we? All right, so the first step in rightly living out our man-to-man relationships is that we have to allow God to do his work in us, right? We have to allow him to do the transforming work so that we personally are not part of the problem, that we are not adding to the brokenness. But it doesn't stop there, right? Because God also is going to call us to be part of the solution. And so in addition to all of the laws and all of the rules that, that, that God gives us to, um, to, to invite us into these personal relationships, and here's how you relate to your neighbor, there are a whole host of other verses that also say things like this. They say, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can, they love, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Right? The Bible could not be more clear that in addition to personally being right with all men, that we are also called to step into the problems of the world around us, that we are called to help our fellow man. So this means that we should be advocate for those who cannot fight for themselves, for those without a voice. It means when you see oppression and injustice in the world, what you should not do is say, someone, someone should do something about that. Or that's a problem, but it's not my problem. What we should say is, do you know what? I am my brother's keeper. I am responsible for the well-being of my fellow human being. Two weeks ago, Colin referenced a study of the amazing uh, effect missionaries have on cultures and how by simply sharing the gospel, how it radically transformed the culture around them. Here, let me remind you, here's what the study said. It said nations where missionaries had a significant presence in the past are more economically developed with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, and higher educational attainment, especially for women. And do you know why that's true? Because when individuals are transformed by the love of God, those new believers now start to care about the health and the well-being of everything and everyone around them, right? That, that work that God's doing in them, that source of life, it doesn't stay there. It like bursts out and it just says, ooh, I see something over there I can help and I could help that over there and I could speak into that. And that shouldn't be that way. That could be better, right? And that's the transforming love of God. It starts to work itself into all kinds of things around it. As I was thinking about this this past week, I was trying to just think through what are some examples? What does this look like for us right here 
in Medina. And one of the, one of the things that came to mind was a, a couple in my life group, Eric and Liz Sartain. I don't know if you guys know them, but um, there's someone in our life group and they have decided to become foster parents, right? Along with so many, there's a whole host of people in this church who have decided to step into this, the, the foster care system. And what that means is that on any given day, they could get a phone call that says, hey, in about three hours, we're gonna drop a couple kids off at your house. That's crazy, right? So why in the world would somebody do this? Well, I think on some level, it's because they understand I am my brother's keeper. I am responsible for my fellow human being. I think this same understanding of God's heart and design is what led uh, Ben and Tanya Falkenberg to recently sell their home in Wadsworth and to move their family to Mexico to work with one of our ministry partners called Shoulder to Shoulder. Right, they're part of Grace Church. I think they left about six months ago. Ben was an anesthesiologist. He was living a very comfortable life. But because they believe they are responsible for their fellow human being, they have answered God's call. They have left friends and family behind in order to help people thousands of miles away with problems that are thousands of miles away. Right? They could have very easily said, man, that, that's terrible. Someone should do something, but it's probably not us. But they said, no, I'm going to do something about it. And they made significant steps to do that. I asked our staff this week, give me some examples. How do you see this playing itself out in the life of this church? Here's some of the things they told me. They told me stories of a guy who decided to leverage his business resources to sponsor the educational needs of some underprivileged kids. They told me about someone who intentionally tries to hire and give a second chance to people who are on parole. They talked to me about someone in this church who started a nonprofit to help at-risk women. They told me about someone in our church who has decided to open up their house every week to their neighbors, uh, kind of because they just, not because they see a problem, but because they, they just want to be available and to know if there is one, right? Like, we just, we got to try something. They told me about people here who volunteer in prisons and at pregnancy centers and invest in our youth who joined our neighboring program. There are life groups who have a, literally adopted widows and said, whatever they need, we're going to cover it. We're just going to take care of them. And the list of things could go on and on of real people in our context are saying, I, I see a problem. I'm, I'm going to go, I'm gonna go do something about it. And why would, why would people do things? Why would do things like this? Why would they give up their resources? Why would, they, why would they take a chance on something like this? Why would, they, why would they spend so much time volunteering and giving their life away? Well, I think, again, it's because in part, they understand that in God's design that they are their brother's keeper, that they are not just responsible for just the relationships that they have, but that they are responsible to care for the well-being of the world around them. And so the reality is the application of this canon, it will look different for all of you. While some of you might be called to move around the world, others of you are gonna be called to figure out how do I live this out right here in Medina County in the places I live and the places I work. And while you clearly can't help every person and every problem, if you trust in God's good design, Sitting on the sidelines isn't an option either. And while you individually can't solve every problem, when we collectively embrace this type of thinking, 
man, we can sure help a lot of them. Can sure help a lot of them. And I think when we corporately, when we as God's people step into these things, when we decide to make other people's problems our problems, the world around us will absolutely take notice. One of my favorite examples of this comes from the late third century. There is a a Roman emperor by the name of, of Julian. That's what most people call him by the name of Julian. And he is just on record. He's very opposed to Christianity. He actually considered it an athe- uh, a group of atheists, like they didn't believe in real gods. And he is on record as lamenting his frustration about the growth of Christianity in his day. Here's what he said. I love this. He said, atheism, again, i.e. referring to the Christian faith, has been specifically advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. I love that. When the people of God rightly live out their God-given design to care for their fellow man, when we become givers in a world full of takers, the world will absolutely take notice. And for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, I've said this before, it is both a beautiful privilege and an incredible responsibility that God has given us to represent him to and to serve the world around us. Now, if you guys remember, I mentioned at the beginning that we were going to spend our time covering two of the falls today. And so I do want to take a moment and look at the last relationship, the one between man and creation as well. And the reason I'm covering both of those today, again, because I believe these two relationships, the man-to-man and the man-creation, they actually run on very similar tracks. There's actually a lot they have in common. And I think by the time we're finished, those things will tie back together and you'll understand why we're doing that. And so this fourth relationship is first established in Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates man with the instructions to rule over creation. And then he places him in the garden with clear instructions to do two things. He is told to work it and to keep it. And as you dive into the original language and what those words mean, here's what they mean. It literally means to serve, to watch over, to guard, and to preserve. And so in a pre-fallen world, We are called to serve, to watch over, and to guard the created world in which we live. And so this relationship is first established in Genesis 1 and 2, just like the other ones. It is obviously part of the fall, just like the other ones. And then just like the other relationships, God also gives his people instructions on how they are supposed to rightly relate to the physical created world in which they live. Now, there are, uh, you're not going to find as many of those laws and many of those rules. Again, as I said earlier, the majority of those are about how you're supposed to relate to your fellow man. And so they're super easy to miss. But if you pay attention as you read through the scriptures, you might be surprised by some of the verses that actually speak to this fourth relationship and this fourth fall. So for time's sake, I want to give you just two examples. And both of these examples are going to be related to rest or what the Bible refers to as Sabbath. So I'm going to read you part of the first one. Here's part of the first one. It says, six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work so that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to try and finish this verse in your mind. 
what do you think the rest of the verse should say or would be most likely to say? On six days, do your work, but on the seventh day, do not work so that you can worship the Lord your God so that you can rest because you've been working hard for six days so that you can spend time with your kids and be a good husband and a good father, right? These are the things that would come into my mind as I try and finish it. Here's, here's how it actually finishes, though. So that your ox and your donkey may rest. Kind of unexpected, right? Not how most of us would have finished that passage or thought it would have went. Uh, and that's because the passage has nothing to do with us. It has to do with creation. And that's everything to do with how we should rightly care for and steward over part of the physical creation that God has entrusted to us. Here's a second one. I find this one fascinating. Uh, Leviticus 25 says, For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. And so God has given them instructions about all sorts of things, about how to properly relate to him, about how to relate to their fellow man, about how to even relate to themselves. He's also giving them uh, instructions about how to, how to relate and interact with creation. And he goes as far as giving them instructions about how to relate to the dirt, right? To the physical ground on the, that they're standing on. I, I just find that fascinating. It says even the land itself should be shown care and respect. And long before farmers understood the science behind crop rotation and why you need to give land a break so that nutrients can replenish itself, I think that God knew. He knew. And he was calling his people to properly care for and steward over the physical creation. Now, in the same way Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? My guess is that some of you in the room, maybe the majority of you are a little bit skeptical right now, and you're asking yourself the question, am I really creation's keeper? Kevin, are you really telling me that it is my job to care for creation? And the answer is yes. Part of our creation mandate from Genesis 1 and 2 is that God has made us stewards over this earth to both care and rule for it. It literally says we are to work and to keep it. It's literally part of the design. And I think the implications of that reality, I think they're endless. I think it should change the way we use natural resources and how we treat animals. It should change the way we farm and the things that we put in our bodies. It should change the products we buy and what we put in our landfills. The reality is if you believe that there was a good, un original, unbroken design, then that means there is, a, there is a way, an unbroken way, that you and I were designed to interact with the physical world around us. And the call, I think, is really the exact same as it is to our fellow man. In the same way we should not exploit our fellow man, but we should care and love for them, we should also not exploit creation but we should care and we should love for it. Instead of saying not my problem or saying that's someone else's problem or that's the problem of the next generation, we need to remember that God has called us to be part of the solution, 
to recognize that he has given us responsibility to care for and steward over the world in which he's blessed us to live in. And I want to be honest, I think that this is probably one of the more underdeveloped parts of mainstream Christian theology, right? My guess is that not very many of you have spent a lot of time thinking about creation care in your life, and I'll be honest, myself included, I spend very little time thinking about it. But as I open up the Bible and I read through the scriptures, I think the Bible is pretty clear that it is still something we should care about. And because I am convinced of God's design of the beauty and the brilliance and the intentionality in which he put everything together, and because I can see how these things break down in all these other relationships, I think the degree to which we get this right, our world will benefit. And I think the degree to which humanity gets this wrong, our world will only further the implications of the brokenness of the world that we live in. And just like before, there are a thousand applications for this that we don't have time to get into today. But I think because this is new to us, right? So before you can learn to run, you need to learn how to walk. Before you learn how to walk, you need to learn how to crawl. And so because this is so new to most of us, here's where I think we need to start. I think we need to start by simply asking God the question, God, how do I start? Maybe this is just a whole new way of thinking for you. Again, you haven't spent much time on it. And so I think we just need to start by saying, God, help me understand what exactly it is you call me to in this area. And God, would you just give me one place? Will you just show me one place how I can start to move forward and honor you in this area of my life? So I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. Uh, but while they're coming, I wanna kind of close out with two things. The first thing I wanna do is I wanna talk about Love Medina for a moment. So you guys have heard about this a lot. This is the last time we get to put this in front of you. It's next weekend. Here's the deal. Our goal is that 100% of you would join us in this. Not 70%, not eight. We want every single one of you to join us. We want to absolutely blitz our community with acts of service and acts of love and we believe this is so important that we are canceling services next weekend to make space for you to do it. Why? Because of everything we've talked about throughout this series. Because we believe God has called us to step into people's lives and to love them and to help them and to share the hope of Jesus with them and even to maybe go help their physical creation in their yard. Whatever it is, we want to go physically and spiritually help people. And sometimes the best thing to do is to stop talking about how we're gonna help people and it's to actually just go help people. And so we're inviting you guys into that next weekend. But our ultimate goal in this event is not that it would be a one-time event, but that this would also serve as a catalyst that would help all of us start to think differently, not one weekend, but all of the time. That we collectively would adopt a mindset that says we are our brother's keeper, that we are responsible for the world around us. And with that new mindset, we would then go live that out on a day-to-day -day basis in the places we work, the places we live, and the places we play. That's the heart behind all of this. The second thing I want to do is I'm going to close by reading you guys a passage out of the book of Isaiah. And so one of the things that I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the series, I showed you this slide, and it's the idea that when God created us, he gave us creation, he put us in a good and beautiful place that we were designed to live in. But obviously right now we find ourselves living in this broken world, still good and still beautiful in so many ways, but, but broken and flawed. It's all the stuff we talked about. And then we also mentioned that one day 
The Bible speaks about one day that we will get to live with him for eternity in something called new creation, which much like creation will be an unbroken, beautiful place to live. And so right now we find ourselves living in this sandwich world in between. And in the same way that creation, what we were designed for, speaks into how we should live here and now, what we ultimately long for and what we are destined for also should speak into the way that we live and the way that we think right here, right now. So I'm gonna close by reading you a passage out of Isaiah uh, that where, where, where it speaks into what that day and what that new creation will be like, both because it informs how we should live now and also because of the beautiful hope of what believers will one day get to live in. So as I read that, I just kind of want you guys to just kind of envision in your mind what this would be like. If that means you need to close your eyes or do something to not be distracted, you can do that. If you want to just stare at me while I read it, whatever it is you want to do, go for it. I just want you to try and envision the picture that God's trying to paint for us from Isaiah. So let me read it for you. Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will, will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Father, we long for that day. Father, we long for that world when the brokenness and the pain and the suffering will all be gone. God, we long for the created world that you, you designed for us. But we know right now we're not in either of those places. We are in the physical world that is broken, that is full of sin and suffering and all the stuff. So God, would you help us choose in to your good and perfect design in the here and now. Would you help us trust you? Would you help us lean in even when it doesn't make sense? And God, would you give us grace in the moments when we fail to do this, when we don't live out the relationships the way that you designed us to, when we add to the brokenness, when we bring in the pain, God, would you, would you be gracious to us? God, thanks for not looking at us and saying, not my problem. Thanks for saying I can do something about that. Thanks for sending your son. Thanks for the cross. Thanks for your grace. We are grateful. Father, we love you. 
We thank you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you.